Hello, San Francisco. You are listening to KXSF LP, San Francisco. And it is another Wednesday at two o'clock. And that means the show is Fifth Wave Radio, Clearly Drinking. Had a, that was a great toast and jam. Love listening to some of, of the Richard Thomas, um, who's a great performer. And uh, was lucky enough to see him a couple of years ago, Phil Morris. So, uh, DJ Hankster just told me that he, or, or Hankadelic, I'm not sure what he is today, sometimes Hankster, sometimes Hankadelic, but uh, told me that he heard him the other night at Freight and it was great. So always nice having good musicians come around locally, especially in, in smaller venues too. That's always a treat. So today we are having, the first part of our show is on lesbian visibility, or excuse me, the, this is the first part in a series of shows that we're going to be doing on lesbian visibility. So uh, I will, we're going to get the show started in just a minute. For First, we're going to do, uh, have a quick PSA, and then we'll be back in just a minute to get everything going on with, with the show. Okay, so now we're back, I promise. So one thing I've been thinking about a lot is that there are so many more people seem to be queer identified today, but even though they might be identifying as queer, and that goes for people who might also identify as male or female or, or non-binary, uh, it just seems like there's been a, a dwindling of lesbian visibility. And so, we're going to discuss that if that is in fact the case, or I don't think it's it's not so much I don't think it's so much of a yes or no answer. I think there are there are different ways of, of looking at it. But uh, I have uh, for today's program four really wonderful guests are joining me. So first we have Mandy Carter, is a Southern Black lesbian social justice activist who moved to North Carolina from San Francisco in 1982. While living in San Francisco, she worked at two former lesbian bars, Maud Study and Amelia's, owned by Ricky Stryker. She was one of the founders of the San Francisco Tavern Grills in 1962 until 1995, the first ever gay and lesbian business association in the country. So uh, we are I'm very, very excited to have Mandy with us today. We have also have Judith Cohn. Judith uh, relocated to San Francisco after two years as a professional skateboarder and an underage DJ stint at a newly minted San Diego lesbian bar, what does it say, Sornos. Uh, inspired by the drive to create exceptional social spaces for lesbians, she started on a path of both social direction, social direct activism, as well as conceptualizing and creating large scale events. Judah serves as the, served the lesbian and queer communities as a raconteur, political and social activist, executive events and sports entertainment producer. Among her many accomplishments are co-founding the San Francisco Dyke March, ACT UP, Golden Gate, San Francisco Lesbian Adventures. In addition, she founded and produced multiple women's clubs, including the Ecstasy Lounge, Women's Sex Club, and the dance clubs of Avalon, Diva, and Desire, featuring some of SS finest DJs. We all are also joined uh, by Elizabeth Van Winkle. Elizabeth grew up in Southern Illinois and moved to St. Louis as, as a young, adult after being unhoused by her family for being LGBTQ. She's a sex educator, event producer, writer, and artist who has taught, who has taught at the International Ms. Leather and Bootleck. In 2016, she started Gutter Glitter and Venus and Furs, the first BDSM events for women and genderqueer people in town and underground dance parties. She has worked at Our Bar, the last lesbian bar in St. Louis, and several other LGBTQ spaces in St. Louis. She currently writes for the Riverfront Times and out in St. Louis, St. Louis's queer media source. Ms. Van Winkle is the author of what a gay, What's a Gay Bar Anyway? Who Loses When Queer Spaces Shudder? And finally, but not least, uh, Jean Shaheen. Jean is a longtime human rights activist who has worked for diverse social justice community organizations such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, West and the Los Angeles 
LGBT Center. She has been on the ground floor of organizing and producing many queer core activist groups, including Queer Nation SF, ACT UP, Lesbian Avengers, Bad Cop No Donut, and Dykes with Dogs. Jane is a Jane of many trains, trades and created what, the one and only Butch Appetit family of groups on Facebook, as well as producing large sale community events. So thank you everyone for being here today. It's, it's such a pleasure to have this group of people who have such a wealth of experience and I think uh, wisdom to impart on this conversation about uh, lesbian visibility, or I should, or I could also say invisibility in a sense. So let, let's just get right to it because as we, an hour flies by, so I'm just going to just dive right into it. So something that I've noticed is that lesbians have always been less, less visible than gay men. There have always been fewer, fewer bars and meeting places for lesbians than there have been for gay men. So why do you think that is, or do you, or do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, and just a second here, hold on. Okay, I think I had your mics off. N now it's on. Well, I'll just jump in real quick. I'm sitting here in Durham, North Carolina. And so okay. good to be with y'all. This is an incredible timing of this conversation. Yeah, I great. Remember... And thank you, Mandy, for being here. I know that it's a bit of a time difference. So thanks for making it happen. Yeah, Durham, North Carolina. Um, but I remember, if you remember this, uh, the, the what was it called? Uh, Everyone hitchhiking out to San Francisco in the summer of love in 1967. Mm -hmm. Not only hippies, but a lot of gay and lesbians moving into San Francisco. So from my personal point of view, I waited until I was 21 to go into Maud study, which is on 937 Cole Street, which is now called Finnegan's Wake. And this is just me. I've been hearing about this sense of lesbian invisibility. I'm not sure if I believe that or not. I'll be curious to hear from the others. But I think a lot of it is just like, how do people self-define? You know, and I, I, you know, if it had not been for those lesbian bars coming from New York City when I was 18 years old, going into these bars called like after Johnny Mathis songs, like 12th and Never, pretty much owned by mob, whatever. I was really struck by, and I'll leave it with this. I was struck by the fact that you would have bars open in the broad daylight that you could walk in and out of in San Francisco uh, versus going into New York City, which you would, be, would be the reverse. But I think the key thing for Mod Study, which was started in 1966 with Ricky Stryker, because of all the gay and lesbian bars, they, they formed the San Francisco Tavern Guild. It really made a pivotal difference in terms of how the ABC laws and how the community in San Francisco would be responding. Um, so that's just me. I still can self-identify as an out black lesbian. I'll use that word. I'm not sure if I believe in this being um, erased, but I'll pass it on to Elizabeth and or um, who else is on this call as well to see what they think about it. That's just my two cents worth. What do you okay. think? All right. Hi. Who, who wants so to chime honored, in? I'm so honored to be here with you all. Um, how exciting. Thanks. Yeah, uh, that's Elizabeth. Yeah, I come. Yeah, I'm Elizabeth. I I come from a very strange place. I'm out here in the Bible Belt in St. Louis, and St. Louis was the big city for me because I came from Southern Illinois, and um, it's 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 really weird out here. And I I I do feel like there is a lesbian invisibility, um, but I also think that we we just have a very strange culture out here. We have we've had very very few lesbian bars ever. Um, and we haven't had one in probably 10 years, um, at, at all. Um, uh, but all of the women, I mean, queer women and trans people and, and queer women of color were so marginalized. We just, so many of us, we, we talk constantly about starting up a new bar and nobody really has the money. The gay men, they can start. I mean, there's like, I think at least five gay bars that are really centered towards gay men in this town. And, they tend to say, well, we're for everybody, but then they only hire men behind the bar. They only have men in management and they tend to be, always be white cisgender men. So um, I think I think part of our invisibility is that we're not giving jobs in these quote unquote queer spaces. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I, I mean, that, that's interesting. I think, uh, you know, it's, I was somebody, I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me that about when they went to like a men's bar and they were actually kicked out, okay? Um, and so you try to draw this, this line between, okay, you could call some a, a venue a lesbian bar, right? That doesn't mean that you have to be a lesbian to go in there, but, uh, but it's also, okay, how, how do you let people know that everyone is welcome, but this is really the clientele that we're catering toward? So, you know, you do that, let's say, if it's a gay men's bar, let's say by having gay men work, they're having, have it, if it's a, a lesbian bar, having lesbians work there, but then it does 
you do have the other side of it is that that is discrimination in a way. And I, you know, I just wonder if as we're trying to become a lot more inclusive within like the, the LGBTQ world and like, for instance, using the term, let's say queer woman, as opposed to lesbian, uh, where I was just trying to have sort of this umbrella of inclusivity. If that is, is, is maybe also having a, an impact on like, you know, the, the like lesbian subculture. I, I could tell you uh, that we don't really have like a lesbian subculture in St. Louis. It's kind of sad. We don't, like I said, we don't have any meeting spaces at all whatsoever. There's a couple of like Facebook groups, like a meetup.com group, but that's kind of it. And it's, it's mostly because there's never really been like, it's kind of never really existed. So when I started throwing my events that were, you know, BDSM spaces and women centered, I, you wouldn't believe the hate I get. And it's just because, really they, this town's never seen anything like it before it's not really like les like lesbian and women centered events are that radical of a thing it's just that this town's never seen it so i i and our, my people experience a huge amount of hate so that really does impact the the complete lack of lesbian culture and, and culture for queer women in this town and you have to remember out here in missouri it's still completely legal to be fired for being lgbtq and that is that's that hugely impacts people as well I, I'd just be curious, this is Mandy again, to hear from Judith, because, you know, one thing I found interesting, um, if you remember, unless you owned, unless you were a woman who owned those bars, you, you, no women could be allowed to be bartenders. And that was the reality of those lesbian bars. But the reality, and this is the thing I'm interested in, why, do, why were women going to those bars in the first place as lesbians, whether you were out or not? Part of it is because that was the one place we could feel at least relatively safe. But, you know, when I'm, I'm curious about Elizabeth and also Judith as well. There was something about, with all due respect, I worked as a bartender and I worked in those bars, Amelia's and Maud's, and you know what the reality of those bars, it's alcohol, it's the smoking, you know, it's the, the uh, cigarette machines, it's, it's the um, pool tables and jukeboxes. At first, all those vendors said, we're not going to be giving these queer people until they realized the number of people money. that were critical into their, in terms of the money. But also that really translated into, and this is the reality of why Maud's, in my opinion, we have a Facebook page now called Maud's Reunion. Ricky Strucker realized it wasn't just about selling alcohol. That was around whether or not you could change the rules of that ABC in the city of San Francisco, but also Harvey Milk, because he realized you cannot have that many queers running in the city of San Francisco and not someone having be down in city hall. And then he realized when he said that was important. So you made that transition. But now this is, I'm, I'm living in Durham. We have no queer bars, but we have places where everyone is welcome. LGBTQ, SYQ, and I'm just wondering now if that's the transition and what were women going there for? For companionship, for some place to relate. So I'm not sure that if the bar in terms of like a liquor is, is, is like the place would be appropriate. Coffee houses now, now because of COVID we're on this. But Judith, what do you think about this? And I'll pass it back also to you as Elizabeth as well. I'm not so sure the bars are like the necessarily place that we have to always meet and congregate, but I'm open. Judith? I, I agree with you. I mean, I think spaces, no matter what they are, are helpful. But first, before I start, I want to say thank you to Pamela for inviting me and everybody. And it's an honor to be on this panel with everybody. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you as well for putting yourself out there in a pretty rough environment um, and taking all that heat for BDSM concerns. I have a lot of thoughts. I've thought about this for a long time. I've been interviewed over the years when I had clubs in San Francisco, I no longer live in San Francisco. I live in a small town in the central coast of California where there is zero anything going on unless you create it with among your friends or you or you do a meetup, you know, with gay men who primarily do it. I still do a little bit of promoting, but not not nearly as much as I used to do it in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, I think it, I think in terms of I think it's not just a, it's not to me a class thing. It's not a race thing. It's not even a visibility thing. It's a gumption thing. It's like, really, if, 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 you, if you, I even took some notes, I'll be reading it off because it's, I had some time to think about it late last night, but it really boils down to resources and risk and personality. The huge investment and resources uh, wasn't something that women seemed to want to jump into in the 80s and 90s, with the exception of Ricky and um, Mar maybe, uh, let me see who else, that was it. Who else was owning Lila? Lila with um, Lexington. Um, they weren't really, there were things that they were willing to jump into. They were not risk averse. Um, 
there were never any uh, the lesbian tech millionaires, and there were many of them. There's even many more of them right now in the Bay Area, Los Angeles area, across the, across the nation that could easily invest in this. Um, not just a not just a bar, but really just an entertainment location. You know, that's my dream. It always always has been my dream. Always will be my dream. At any rate, they didn't. They were. They wasn't. I don't know if it was a risk averse or or if it was what it was exactly why they didn't want to do it. Another thing is personality. It takes a certain type of personality. They want to put themselves out there and be in that really hard work environment, late nights, um, a lot of personalities, a lot of issues. I can I can tell you some nightmare issues I had with women in in running the clubs we did when we had uh, ecstasy in the sex club, club, which was by the way legalized, but still. Uh, it just it attracted all, all sorts of personalities that you had to had to approach and deal with differently. Um, but really, it's just I think it just boils down to gumption and uh, the willingness to do it, to put yourself out there. Uh, we all, you know, I got tired of, people, of everybody saying, well, what are we going to do? There's nothing to do. Where are we going to go? So I just said, let's create it. Let's put together a, uh, you know, let's rent the spaces. Uh, and work it out. Now, a lot of times we've gone to spaces and we would do better than the men who own the spaces themselves, such as at Arrows, the Center for Safe Sex. They kicked us out. Ecstasy was 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 breaking all records in, the, in their first year because we were allowed to open alongside with them. There were women on the board of Ecstasy Lounge. Uh, no, excuse me. There were women on the board of Arrows, the Center of Safe Sex that were very supportive of us doing this. But when they saw how how creative and how successful we were being, and how we had a line around the block every other week. They just like, you're out. <laughs> and Eros just closed, by the way. Oh, I didn't oh, know. really? Shuttered. Yeah. Well, do, we know, do we know why? What, hap- what, what, what happened? Probably COVID related. Yeah, it could mm-hmm. be. Well, I mean, and I think that that's also the way that people just in general are, are socializing is a bit different. I do want to talk about that a little bit, but I do want to, as just, Keep, I wanted to spend a little more time talking about like the, you know, why there is, at least some people feel that there is sort of lesbian, you know, invisibility or, or erasure. And I, and I do wonder if it also has to do with just women's sexuality, regardless of, of your of one's sexual preference, just being repressed. Whereas like men's sexuality, you know, men have always been, uh, it's been much more acceptable for men to be open about their sexuality, uh, and and I think that you know where wi- women are taught from a very young age, this is something that, that you you don't share with the public, you know, uh, not just your sexuality as far as like your 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 sexual preference, but just being a sexual being, and yes, you, know, so you could go into men's clubs and you know men you know gay men's bars and see your men. Granted, you go to places like the hole in the wall, you see all kinds of things. But if you just go to, you know, your generic, you know, gay bar in, you know, in the town, you know, you see men being affectionate with each other. You see that too with with women. But I but I also wonder if that has something to do with it because I think when when we talk about lesbian, like lesbian visibility, uh, I think we also have to think about there's a big a, a big part of this is not just about being queer, but mm-hmm. it's about being female. And the way that women's sexuality has historically been denied and, and repressed. And, you know, there, there's even been hostility to it for women to think that they should be in charge of their own sexuality, too. Mm. So I was just wondering if, any, if anyone here had any, any thoughts about that. Well, this is Mandy again. I'll chip in a little bit. Um, and and, and, and it, it, it's a great question, because I remember when uh, Maud's was founded in 1966 up on Cold Street, it's still there. But I remember when Amelia's opened up on Valencia Street, you had like, what was it called? Good Vibrations. You had yeah. a bookstore. Um, but you also had the San Francisco Women's Building. And one of mm-hmm. the bis- biggest uh, biggest arguments we had, why do you have a bar on Valencia Street that's serving alcohol? Because that was so detrimental to women's lives, let alone lesbians. So that conversation, I mean, the Women's Building, which is sitting there, that was like a major thing in San Francisco, um, to have this really big debate about why would you have a lesbian bar or good vibrations because their definition of what they thought the, what would be good for women and lesbians back in the day, we ended up having a huge conflict about that. So I'm just curious, like, like you know, with Elizabeth and also thinking of Judith, you th- if you think back in the day, if that was the issue now, then what is the issue now? 
Right. And this idea about who gets to define what sexuality is, can you do S&M? And then, you know, uh, who is, is it Judith? Who opened up these bars which you had like um, lesbian erotica, strippers and whatnot? And people said, oh no, we can't have that because you got this kind of women and politically being correct, but it got a little confusing but we had to defend the fact that we had mods and Amelia sitting there with Ricky Stryker. That was, it was a community. So yeah. I'll, I'll pass it on. That yeah, was Lauren Hewitt. That was Lauren Hewitt who did the uh, place on 8th and Phil Folsom. And it was called the Bay Brick Inn. Can't believe I didn't remember her name. And she was the one who created, or at least there were people brought in creating. And so was Carlin Lotney. He created that. He created a spaces too. It's funny how you we, we tend to forget. Yes. Um, the outliers who really weren't outliers. Mm -hmm. um, but she they she created a uh, lesbian uh, burlesque with a uh, burlesque or something like that. So <laughs> yeah, there is a I, I I don't know. You know what about now? I, I can't even think straight about it. COVID's kind of dampened the waters of visibility or where are we going to go or where we're going to go out or when are we going to do it and i and i live in a cow town so i think about well my my idea of going out when i go to san francisco is i'll go to duny cafe and i'll look at she she white lesbians but it's not the be all end all it's just there that's that's one place i know that's open uh there's just a limited number of uh of, of places that are great you know Paige, i, I don't even know if Paige hodell wants to create any more events but she was instrumental and in, absolutely in mm -hmm. the late 80s too mm -hmm. i think it was late 80s and really about music and coming together and joy you know the thing i might note about it is, is when i opened up ecstasy when we opened i, I by the way i didn't found um ecstasy lounge it was founded by kataka gara mm -hmm. and i helped um bring her into creating her club to be a legalized um, venue, and we chose the uh, space of Eros initially to do it. But the outpouring of engaged women um, by thousands sent a message that there was no repressed anything. Mm -hmm. um, not in terms, and I never felt that. That was then. That's the background. Now, I think people, when you bring it up, when I bring up this thing around uh, having a uh, a sex environment, and we would actually call it a safer sex club, mm -hmm. and we guaranteed that. Um, people get all excited, like I wish I was there, you know, and we, you know, it's like, who's going to do that? Who's going to have, again, the gumption, the, the grit to create these kind of spaces? Who's mm -hmm. going to do it? Yeah. And Elizabeth, what do you think about it? What do you think? What do you ponder about that then and um, now? Well, I mean, I wasn't around then. Um, mm -hmm. So all I can do is tell you spirit. I've been around since the early 2000s, and I can mm -hmm. tell you, I, I think trends hit um, the Midwest and the Southern Midwest mm -hmm. like a little later after they hit y'all on the coast. But um, I can tell you that I witnessed, I, I was there to witness, like we had a really amazing lesbian bar and then Will and Grace came on. And then all of a sudden we were inundated by straight people. And at first it was kind of cool. It was like, oh, our straight friends finally feel comfortable dancing with us in our bar. That's awesome. And they're spreading their money around. That's cool. And then bam, the Craigslist creepers showed up and then fights started breaking out in the gay bars because the straight people were, you know, hassling us. And then we didn't feel safe in our own bars and then our own bars ended up closing. So I think for, for me, what I see is um, and now there's this trend with a lot of gay bars um, that like gay people out here will open up a bar and we'll be like, all right, I know that person's gay. Like we're going to have a new gay bar. But then they're like, well, it's an everybody bar. Mm -hmm. Everybody's welcome. And mm -hmm. like it's it's just very clear to us that they want everybody's money, but they don't they are not necessarily committed to providing us women people of color, trans people, safety. And mm -hmm. so then we don't end up patroning the spaces. It's, 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 right. I mean, you can't call your space a gay space or a queer space or a mm -hmm. women's space if you don't provide safety for those specific people, you know? And Things I think that's something that's really important mm -hmm. about the right. idea of like why mm -hmm. I think you know, gay bars, lesbian bars do need to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because there is that safety it's among mm -hmm. the reasons there is that safety factor. And it's true for gay men. It's true for lesbians. It's true for people who are bisexual. It's true for people who are transgender. Uh, I, you know, there are, I think for women, but women in general at, at any bar are, you know, you always have to think about safety. And I, I'll, I'll even go a step further and say, 
mm-hmm. especially any place where you go where alcohol is served. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like I, you know, my day job, I've been working in the wine industry for 31 years and you, you know, there are wine tastings that you, women go to and things have come up over the last few years where people are like, I just don't feel safe going there. Mm-hmm. I'm being you know, harassed. I go there. And in, in addition to being dismissed and ignored by male winemakers, they're also harassed. Uh, you know, people might go out to have like, oh, come out, let's go and have drinks afterward. And then all kinds of things happen. And that's just that. I mean, when you're in an atmosphere where you have a lot of alcohol mm-hmm. and you have other people coming in who are not part of the community and are, you know, are there, maybe they're just there because they're curious to check it out. But still, I think, I, I think it's like, it's, it is very important to, to have, have these spaces, you know, whether it's a cafe, whether it's a bar, whatever it is. You know, to have mm-hmm. it, and it's. Well, it try, and I'd, try, I'd also like to just just interject here sure. that there's so much gentrification going on, you know, at the epicenter of the queer universe, which would be the Castro in San Francisco, and the Castro Theater, uh, which is you know a landmark, right, is now been taken over by Bill Graham's organization. And it's going to cater to straight people. Really? Um, our, yeah. our supervisor, uh, former supervisor, Scott Weiner, who's a gay man, mm-hmm. sold out the queers in, in San Francisco and is, has created these Los Angeles style condos and high rises that <laughs> have forced all the queers out of out of the castro and well, all, all the queers who don't have tech money i mean you know that everybody's yeah. moved to oakland to find community again and quite frankly where it's happening for lesbians is oakland mm-hmm. you know um and and brooklyn right um you know and and areas like that mm-hmm. um valencia street is a joke I mean, it's, yeah. it's just it's just totally straight, uh, but but what what's most appalling to me is uh, the metrosexual sort of co-opting. Uh, metrosexual, <laughs> what, is, you know what, what is that? Metrosexual. It's it's kind of repulsive to me in the fact that they've put <laughs> that they've that Scott Weiner set aside money instead of taking care of people that were being displaced from our gay ghetto, instead of taking care of them, he put down rainbow crosswalks. Well, I'm sorry, but go to hell. Yeah, yeah, that, I'm not a big fan so, of those. Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah. I, can, I, can I throw something in the mix? This is interesting, because one of the things, when I, and when I moved out there, and we hitchhiked out from New York City in 1967, but there's been a lot of people moving back home. A lot of people who used to be in the South, we did, a, we did one of the early pride marches. And by the way, think about those pride marches when you think about what used to happen. It was those trans up there on Polk Street. Let's not forget that. Oh, yeah. But the defining moment had to have been when um, Moscone and Harvey Milk were murdered down in City Hall. You know that. I, was I, remember, I want to just share this real quick. But, and I have to admit, when I moved out to San Francisco, the number of lesbian, there must have been 12 of them and you know, with hundreds of gay men and it was kind of this kind of blase, you're there, we're there, and what was the point? But it wasn't until that murder, we had to meet at the corner of Castro and Market. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. And we said, what have we been doing? He had said, if you do not have someone representing you in terms of that city hall, whatever you might want to define of like where you live and how you pay your taxes or whatever. And I was in tears and we looked at each other and said, what have we been doing? Why did it take this murder? Why this kind of killing to make the difference? Now bring it up to speed. A lot of Southern, but that's where black folk were moving to also to other places. And, you know, so there's a Southern kind of back home thing that might be happening. And, and, and also, quite honestly, the question I have really in a way is, does everyone have to migrate to a place they can feel safe or do you create the safety of where you are? But I think it's a both end. It doesn't have to be, you know, like either or. And that concerns me. So here in the South, where I live in Durham right now because of COVID, you understand that. Well, we had a bar that opened up. I can't remember the name of it, but we had Lady Sipper Music here. Lady Sipper Music. Think about those music festivals and think about, remember those when those happened? Sure. Music festivals and you found a place to call home. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering in 2021, 2022, moving forward, 
what are the definitions of what is safe, how you can feel like who you can be and being out and visible, especially for those of us who are black and queer. Pat Parker, black lesbian from the East Bay. We'd go to mods and she would yell at me, Mandy, you're not black enough. What are we doing in mods? It's all white. And they, it's, and who's gonna go to Oakland? And then by the way, when we do those, you know, the dike marches, they would still go by, you know, you start in Dolores, you know, go right by the old mods, which is there at 647 Valencia. And I'm thinking like, well, can we remember our history, our LGBTQ history, and then figure out what do we do with it now? And could there be an intergenerational conversation about this? And I'll end with this. What about that thing that happens in Palm Springs every year? Do you call that being radical? What's happening? What's the name of that thing that happens? Oh, the Dinah. The Dinah Shore. The Dinah. Oh, okay, yes. this is a good time for us to take a break. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll we'll get back. We'll it's be back turned. in just uh, 60 seconds or so. <laughs> <laughs> Mandy. <laughs> Are we on? Are guys no? on? I'm going to be out in San Francisco in June for prize. Well, you need to figure out having oh, a conversation. Oh, well, we need to hang out. And I might have to follow through St. Louis to see you, Elizabeth. <laughs> well, that would be amazing. <laughs> I would. I have a lot of friends who are there. And oh, that's the bookstore. Cool. This, what's the name of the left? It's called Left, left Bank, Bank Bookstore. Yes. Yeah. A lot mm -hmm. of friends. Uh, Let's stay in touch with each other. Okay. I liked your page yesterday, by the way. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I added you as a friend. Yay! <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth is awesome because, because, I mean, as amazing as, you know, Judith and Mandy and Pamela and I are. Ju <laughs> Elizabeth. So, okay, well, thank you all for tuning yeah. into today's show. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Bush. The show is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. And our topic today is uh, the first part in a series on lesbian, in, lesbian visibility. Uh, my guests, I'm very pleased to have four great guests here Mandy Carter, Judith Cohen, Elizabeth Van Winkle, and Jane Shaheen. And uh, let, let's get to it. So we were, you just, you, you brought up a few really interesting uh, points before the break, Mandy. And so I, let's, let's just get into a couple of them kind of separately. So do you think that in the old days or now that there was much racism and classism like in, in the lesbian world? Uh, and I think this is something that we definitely, we definitely need to talk about what's going on now. Because for instance, yeah, we were talking about who can live to, afford to live in the Castro these days. Okay, it's basically, unless you're working for a tech company or for some reason you're making a lot of money, but there are a lot of people, especially a lot of lesbians who, who live or actually live below the poverty line. No, that's what, when we also talk about lesbian visibility, that's another thing that we need to keep in mind is that poor people tend to be less visible unless of course they're on the street and then they're completely disparaged, right? But, uh, but I think that before we know we have, I think there's, you know, there is the stratification within the, the, the entire LGBTQ world right now. But let, let's first talk about where things were like, let's say, back in the days of Moz and Amelia's and even in, in the 90s. Because I remember when I, I, I moved here in uh, January of, of 1992. And so there are places around and I'd go in and, yeah, there'd be a few people of color, but it was it was hella white. Uh, anyway, Jane, it looked like you wanted to say something. Well, I, you know, I mean, of course, I'm going to defer to Mandy on this if, if you know, you'd like to say something. But I, I would like to interject that within Queer, Queer Nation was the first activist group that, that I'm aware of. And I, maybe Judith can, can corroborate this with me. Um, that uh, reached out to uh, people of color you know, in our community and um, actually had a, a group within Queer Nation because we had a whole bunch of different groups, you know, that had insane names. Um, but one was uh, United Colors um, of Queer Nation. Um, so, and that was a group that was dedicated to uh, uh, acti activism for uh, black, brown and uh, yellow and red um, people of color, you know, people of color, um, in our community. Um, remember that Judith or Mandy? Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then there's AAPI, which mm -hmm. is a, 
an Asian um, and Pacific Islander. Yeah. You yeah, know, I think the operative word is men. It's men, whether you're gay or not, it's men. I mean, who has the resources? I think it's a class issue. Um, and also who had the resources to figure out they can open all these bars. I mean, and if you would take it out of San Francisco, in fact, I'd be curious to hear from you, Elizabeth, as well. Um, if you remember back in the day, unless you owned a bar, you could not have a woman behind those bars. Think about the ABC laws. It basically, it's not like New York City. But the, but the fact that but this is the part that I love and I think this is good about moving forward. However you self however you want to self-identify, the fact that you would create something, the San Francisco Tavern Guild had to be created because the gay men bars were, were facing the exact same discrimination as lesbian bars. Right. You know, the ABC said this, that, and the other. You can't do this and you can't do that. And everyone said why? Until they realized the pool tables, this, you know, the cigarette machines, and then all of a sudden, you know, and they said, first, we don't want, then they said, no, then they came clamoring after us. It was almost like there was a rush, but there was also the integrity of what that, what that meant, because a lot of that was about police harassment. You know how we'd be in mods and all of a sudden the lights would go off and you would be with a, right. a you know, you, you know, you know how that worked. What I the remember. hell was that about? Right. Now and, yeah twice about that so that would just be one thing to consider and i could see where like let's say today where there are states let's say missouri where you could be get fired for being queer and then if someone you know maybe there's not going to be a police raid but if somebody finds out that you went to a, a you know a, a gay bar and then it gets back to your boss you could lose your job for it i mean, it, i can't believe that in 2022 we're still talking about this like it's the 1950s but that is a reality yep. in many states in this country mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like to bring out a lot of activists and teachers from the Bay Area and from all over the world to St. Louis to teach about queer culture and to teach about like kinky things. Um, and they often get very angry with me about the way I run my events. And they're like, well, you run things like it's the 1950s out here. And I'm like, yes, guess where you are. <laughs> Props. Understand. Perfect mm -hmm. point. It, you know, and I just wonder, and I'll ask all of us about this question, you know, a lot now when I do go rounds, you know how with lesbians and also women, we would always sit in a circle. It wasn't be like, you know, the teacher, whatever. But now when you think about it, whether it's generational or not, there's this basic thing. Please ask people their journey. What, how did you end up being where you are and feeling safe enough to use the word lesbian or gay or bi, whatever it might be? But also, what were the institutional things that had to make that change that make a difference? I have to tell you, I'm looking at Right behind me, you can see me behind me, and there's a, for those on the radio, it says 50 years after Selma, um, voting rights still matter. For people to cross that Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, that was John Lewis beaten to death. But in 2015, he walked across that bridge with our first ever, ever, ever African-American president, Barack Obama, who had a thing called LGBTQ pride. For that journey, willing to embrace the fact that queers would be okay with however you want to define it and have that happen, that's a game changer. But most people will say, not me, I don't want to go near those gay people, whether you're black, Asian, whatever it might be. Times have changed. We're in a moment right now, in my opinion. But that's the kind of like, you know, diversity what has to happen. So act up. I was thinking about, um, you know, Ricky used to know who were the two women like um, who started Daughters of Belitis. You have feminists now, oh, oh that old gosh. thing. Don't say that old thing. If it had not been for them, we wouldn't be where we are today. So that legacy is so mm -hmm. critical. And can we remember the history and the history and then figure out what do we do with it now? I'm just, right. And just that, that, yeah. And that was going, you know, the next thing I wanted to ask is like, how can we keep our history and history of the struggle, uh, that of being female and being gay? How can we keep this alive, you know, alive in the sense that so that people know about, you know, upcoming generations know about this, that even though in, you know, in Missouri, I know that you, there's still, there were still, you know, restraints. It's not like being here in the Bay area, but it's definitely a lot has come a long way. How do you know about the history, but also having, how can we keep that fire alive? Because I think one thing that I, that really concerns me is I think that, that a lot of people felt like 2015 marriage equality became law of the land. We won. Well, Marriage equality was a very, very small part of it. I mean, granted, it's, that's not to say it's not significant, but there were so many other issues that are facing the LGBTQ community today. You know, economic, cultural, you know, the, the fact that you can still lose your job in, in many states for being queer. So how, how can we especially keep this particular history? Because the, the reality is that women tend to get erased in history in a way that men don't. 
So when we talk about LGBTQ history, I think we really have to be very vigilant about, about making sure that the L is out there too. Agree, and I, I just be curious, you know, throw it back to Jane, Judith, and Elizabeth. You know, one of the things that um, we've been doing a lot of archiving. So when Ricky Stryker passed, all her papers are now down at the uh, library um, after the Jane's Hormel Library. So the intentionality of how you might have a way to preserve like the papers, like what we're doing right now, quite honestly, Pamela, you know, you, you document the oral history, the written history, whatever. But StoryCorps is one of the ones that might be doing this as well. But I'm sitting here in North Carolina. We have 11 historically black colleges and universities. And one of the things they've been trying to document is the black history, but the black queer history as well, if they're willing to accept that, that that might be. So I'll throw it out to Elizabeth and or Jane or, you know, Judith and what you think about how do we document it, keep it. Um, and also, quite honestly, I have to admit, I don't all I know how to do is email and Facebook. I don't know how to do all that modern Snapchat and whatever. So what do you do with my, I'm 73 now, but I used to be 18. So how do we do it generationally? So Elizabeth and or Jane or Judith, what, what's your take on all this stuff? How do we document this stuff? Uh, this is Elizabeth and I'm a hoarder and I just keep everything. <laughs> and uh, That's not a, a, that's not good, but I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my stuff that I do is not going to get lost. That's, that's all I know. I don't really have a great, I do worry that especially a lot of us uh, younger generations, we do so much online that it's just going to evaporate one day. And I, I don't really know what to do about that. I think about printing out copies of events that I've had because you can't flyer in St. Louis, Missouri, you cannot flyer for your underground women's exclusive BDSM nights. You can, we really can only have an online presence. So um, wait, why can't you flyer? Oh my God. They'll just get torn down or I'll get beat up. Like I can't, it's not safe to put that stuff up around town. <laughs> like it's, it's absolutely it's not safe. It's in Sarah litter. They, they just try to get away from all that. Yeah. I, I last, was it last year, two years ago, I donated everything from all of my years um, of everything with the exception of ecstasy, uh, which was my business partners uh, and give it to the, uh, to the LGBT historical society in San Francisco and they work with another organization, I can't remember the name of it, that uh, scanned pretty much or has scanned or tells the location of it. And that, that's a repository for um, historical societies, um, queer and otherwise. Um, if you do a Google search, you can probably readily find it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, keep telling our stories in media and education is one way of doing it. But the long-term long collection and keeping of that is great. I look forward to that. Um, I look forward. I'm hoping that I, I don't know much about how educational societies take care of their documentation, but I'm sure there's a lot more commitment involved in that. And but for the present present tense, I have to say that the media and large brands are doing more for visibility and inclusion than ever before. Yeah. I mean, in, in 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 mass. I mean, if you looked at the box of cereal that just came out from uh, one of the General Mills boxes of cereal I don't know if anybody saw that saw it but it was I somebody gave it to me as a gift and it's mm -hmm. like it's on a wall right now but I uh it's amazing. I'm sorry Judith I didn't see it what is it lots I'll, of cereal that had the rainbow colors of the of the cereal okay I guess they don't sell it at my little like vegan oh it was like, it was a one-off it was almost like a one-off and then they started selling it on eBay and it became a, a collector's item or something I'll but, send you my question yeah go ahead I'll send you, I'll my, send you my question is how much how much have they contributed to the community? Mm. Yeah, you exactly. Because there, there's much, so how much. How much pink... are these corporations right. contributing to, to our community? Right. There's so much. I, I would going like on. to see. Yeah. I would like to see GLBT Historical Society or some other aggregating uh, queer, you know, uh, organization mm -hmm. figure that out. Right. Can I, can I, but I can interject one of the good things though, you have Smith, you have a number of pre, you know, in fact, I'm here in Durham, I'm, there's Duke University, there's Sally Bingham Center that's collecting all this history of Southern women and culture, including LGBT and truly lesbian. So the question I have though, like who's willing to accept that in any form, in any way, but I think it might be in the Midwest. I'm not sure if that's where you are, Elizabeth, but they're actually collecting everything. Match. If you think about the bars, what? Matchbook covers. How would you give someone a woman's name? Don't even get me started. But the fact that there's now more of a sense of we want to collect this stuff 
and how do you how do you get it? You can digitize it. You can do whatever. My stuff, I'm, I sat Sally Bingham, but here's the good news. A lot of places will say, if you give it to our institution, no one else can have it. But there would be just the opposite. I can take all of my stuff and put it at the Schomburg up in Harlem. You know, I can put it out in other places. So if we're going to be serious about the idea of documenting it, songs, words, posters, whatever it might be, can you make sure that everyone can get access to it so it's not just based on your accessibility because you happen to have an education or you're going to a particular college? So I think that's the other exciting thing about how that is changing as well. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. And I think that as far as, you know, all these things that, that you're talking about right now, like when you see the matchbook covers and all the, like the, you know, they're basically artifacts, you know, artifacts of the lesbian bar, right? And like, you know, what what's happened to all of this? Last, uh, last June, the Hay Street Art Center had an exhibition called Queer Visions. And so they basically picked two venues in San Francisco, the stud and the, well, they had a few, but like there was like a bunch of photographs in the stud and then a bunch of photographs, let's say from the Lexington Club. And, and it was, yeah, yeah, I see this and I, and having been to both places many times, it's like, you can just feel, you see it, it evokes so much, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of what it was about. But mm -hmm. I feel like the, even just these images are, are like, there's just not as, as much of them out there. And I mm -hmm. think that's like, you know, there, there's something that needs to be done about it so that it's not just like, okay, well, generations pass and, you know, there's, and it's just, it's just not there. And this mm -hmm. history, again, that this history is erased because getting back to something that I was saying before, when we talk about like who are the the pioneers of like LGBTQ history, well, in San Francisco, everyone talks about Harvey Milk, and Harvey Milk was a pioneer, and he was amazing. And I'm not going to take anything away from Harvey Milk, but like, what about you know, Dellen and Phyllis? Mm -hmm. I agree. Sally Gearhart. Name Sally Gearhart. I'm with you. I'm with exactly. you. Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that that's like. No, they didn't run for supervisor, mm -hmm. but God, they they had as much of an impact. And and that's I just agree. San Francisco. This is you know throughout the country. And then you know, and here we're talking sure. specifically gender. You know, then you know when you also throw into it, you know, you know race and, and class. And you know who are the who are the people? Yeah, but Harvey was a middle of Harvey was like a middle class, you know, white Jewish man. Mm -hmm. Uh. I, you know, how, you know, thinking about all of the other people who've come through, who, you know, queer history, I mean, just what happened with Stonewall and the way that Stonewall, like the idea that Stonewall has changed. Stonewall was basically, it was mostly, you know, largely transgender people. Mm. Well, that. well, and I'd like to point out that Dr. Susan Kuhner from the Los yeah. Angeles uh, mm -hmm. Gay Center, uh, it was called the Gay Community Services Center at the time. Uh, was one of the chief organizers of the first March on Washington uh, for queers, mm -hmm. uh, the very first one. Yeah. And, um, and I remember because I uh, worked for her and um, we had quite a night that night yeah. um, in Los Angeles. Yeah. I wasn't in Washington though. So we need to take another quick break right now. We'll, we'll be back in just about 30 seconds. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. The show is Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Tricking. So I have a quick question. Is um, here in So we are back. You are listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking on KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Pamela Bush, and I'm very pleased to have several guests here discussing the idea of the idea of the notion, the truth or fallacy of lesbian visibility. We have Mandy Carter, who was a uh, longtime fixture in the San Francisco lesbian bar. 
circuit scene back in the good old days of the 70s and 80s. Uh, Judith Cohen, another person who was a was a fixture in the lesbian scene uh, when I moved here, even before that though, the 80s and the 90s did a Judith did a bunch of things, uh, helped start up the Dyke March and many other activities. Uh, Jane Shaheen, who is also another person who has quietly behind the scenes been doing a lot to uh, create community within the lesbian world and thread that needle. And then our, our newcomer, relatively speaking, to, uh, compared to everyone else, is Elizabeth Van Winkle, who is in St. Louis, and Elizabeth is doing some very brave things in St. Louis, uh, not only to try to raise uh, lesbian visibility, but also with the uh, the SM. Uh, well, I'm getting my, my letters confused. SMBDM uh, scene in St. Louis, and and being in St. Louis, you're also in. in you know, we're all here. You know, the Bay Area. I know Judith, you're not living in the Bay Area right now, but you've. You're in California and you were in when you were you know, doing a lot of your clubs, you were up here. And being in St. Louis for you, it's it's a, as we were saying earlier, it's a different, it's a different mentality because what we just take for granted as something that's accepted and you could do, like, yeah, you can you could post a you know a flyer on a you know somewhere in the Castro about you know a bondage club or something like a bondage lesson or something like that, where you're saying that's the kind of thing you just can't you just can't do in, in St. Louis. And I think that it it just makes me wonder, and I guess I'll maybe start with you, Elizabeth, but how are lesbians finding community today? Uh, you know, given that we have a a situation where there where there is so much and still in a lot of parts of the country, it's it is still really repressed. I think largely people are finding community in online spaces more than ever. Um, and I think, I don't, I don't think that it was necessarily going to have to go that way, but I think COVID really drove that home. Um, I also moderate the St. Louis queer exchange, which most cities have like a queer exchange Facebook group these days. And we're up to over 5,000 people. It's, um, and it's not, it's not just lesbians. It's like kind of all queer people, because I think that people are kind of looking around and looking at the bars that exist and are kind of going, this isn't great. This is not where you find community, you know? So, um, yeah, people are really going online to, to, to find friendship and meet people these days. But, but and I, I know I mean, that's just happening, I think, across the board. And that was even happening, you know, before COVID in a way, because just, you know, because of all these online apps, Tinder and Grindr and Bumble and whatever else is out there. People, that's how a lot of people are meeting each other. But as something that we were discussing earlier, is having a safe space to actually congregate in a place where you can feel like it's safe. You have other, it's just that you're, you don't have to be in a, a space where basically you need to conform to heteronormativity, you know, where the space that basically what runs the space is basically it's, 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 a, it's being, it's a queer way of running the space, you know, whatever sort of way that takes, you know, there's not sort of the same heteronormative, uh, mores of socializing, right? Uh, there's a, that's still limited online. Yeah, you know, it's not the same as being in in a physical space with other people. Certainly, I can tell you that, um, especially as somebody who's always looking for a venue for my events, it is it is truly impossible, at least for me out here, to find something that is. Um, queer, like, so LGBTQ, like affirming and safe, safe for women. Um, the owner and employees of the venue are not affiliated with racism, queer phobia, transphobia, um, any sexual assaults. Um, it is, and, it, and that are, they're taking COVID protocol seriously. It's impossible. The space doesn't exist. So we honestly don't really meet unless it's really, really nice out and we can go hang out in a park, honestly. You know, Pamela, you're, this is Mandy, you're raising an interesting question because a lot of us who have been on this going into third year, um, we've actually found some pros and cons about being on this, this thing about Zoom or whoever you're reading. We have more people showing up on this. If I do a meeting, like for instance, by the way, Lady Shipper Music still exists. It's, you know, it was based in Durham, became out of all those women music festivals. And we have more people going on that to get songs from back in the day but all their, all their stuff is being uh, archived as well. And so my question would be maybe looking forward, if we go forward and we get to the point of where we might be able to be in spaces, a lot of people are gonna do hybrid now. 
You know, I have more people, this is in North Carolina, we have more people on our Zoom uh, because we have access to it and we're, we're, we're proactively figuring out a way to make it equally access to anybody, but that's generational. But think about this, we now have people who do interpretation in Spanish, in Muslim, you have ASL, you have all the other ways that normally you would never get if you were physically in the same space. So the question I have going forward with our movement of lesbians particularly and or those who identify how do we take what's been the positive of this, this medium moving forward when we can get back into the time we can actually be in each other's spaces? And is that a plus or a minus? I'll just be curious to hear from you, Judith, and or Jane, and or you as well, Elizabeth, and your family, because that's just that's a game changer. Literally. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And I think that's uh, that a lot of things are going to be that used to, let's say, be just like kind of an in-person thing. And now we're going to have a, a hybrid model. But yeah, who, who wants to go first? Oh, come on. I'll go. I'll go. Um, okay, I, can, <laughs> I can tell you that even if I were to find this amazing venue where I could hold my events at all of that, that meets all of those qualifications, that this is a very Victorian town and our buildings are not accessible to disabled people. So we are really gonna, like, we, we really do need to keep doing Zooms when, when, whenever we are able to do in-person meetings again. Mm -hmm. Judith, Jane, what do you think? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I'll, I'm happy to like speak to this too, because uh, again, like being in a situation where I, there's a, an annual event that I do, it's an annual wine tasting with women in the natural wine movement. For three years in a row, it was an in-person event. In 2021, we did it, we couldn't do it in person. So we did it as an, an online, we had a weekend, we had three days of panel discussions and it was amazing. Over 400 people tuned in and we were able to have 85 women from all over the world participate on the panels, right? As opposed to having like what we had in 2020, which was right before lockdown, over 300 people came and we had 28 people pouring. So by doing something like that, it, it allowed it, us to have so many more people who, uh, who wouldn't have the chance to, to be part of it. So what we're doing this year is we're gonna have it be sort of a two-part event in April. We're having a virtual session and then we're gonna have a live event in June. Uh, now, I mean, that's something specific, but I think as far as, as what we're talking about right now, I'd say like, let's say if someone has a bar uh, and you know, it's, you could have, you, you could be open in person, but then there's also the opportunity to have some virtual programming and ways of reaching out to the community. That way you could, if you're, if you have a bar in San Francisco, you could be like, Hey, you're wow. Great. You're in here. You're from St. Louis you know, great. Let's talk about what's going on. And then when you're, when you're in San Francisco, come here, you know, come on in. Because I think by, by having this, this virtual platform of communication, it also will allow us to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe what we need to do is actually go and, and provide the resources. So somebody at St. Louis can open up a dike bar. Like it. Like you know? it a lot. I like so it. That, I mean, that's the way that I, I support that by the way. Okay. Well, yeah. all right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll get working on that one. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, like, that's my take on it. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm her. I'm her agent, so you got to come through me on that. Jane. All right, Jane, we'll <laughs> talk offline about it. You know, real quick, I just want to add, just like one other thing that's really been intriguing to me, and it really has a lot to do with also when you think about lesbian and women culture. You know, and, to, and when Sweet Honey and the Rock, first of all, I'm thinking of the civil rights movement. We're in big anniversaries, and 2024 will be the anniversary of the Freedom Summer. And um, some white folk went down really nice and went down and recorded those, re those recordings. There used to be a thing called Freedom Singers. That's, that's you know, uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan, Sweet Honey in the Rock. And for the first time, with all due respect, they had black interpreters, you know, thinking about black women interpreters and back. So it's almost like sometimes, you know, what you have and what you need to meet the moment. But then if you look at that now going even to on these now, Pamela, and even now Zooms, you've got black interpreters, ASL, Latinx, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the fact that people have figured out creatively, how do you make this possible uh, moving forward? Because whatever happens after COVID, how do you keep that, that thing going on? But I have to do a pitch for Last Call at Mods. Last Call at Mods was a film done on Mods uh, that closed, I think, what year did we close? Whatever year it was. Um, but that film is still available on Amazon. Um, but the fact that you had films made like that, it talked about mm -hmm. Sally Gerhardt, Pac Parker and other people. 
But I, I don't want to make sure that we don't lose the history, like you're talking mm -hmm. about, Pamela, of what we had then, and then more importantly, what do we do with, with, do with it moving forward? So those resources are out there. Yep. And it's so being documented. Yeah, absolutely. So it is three o'clock. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. My name is Pamela Bush. And for the last hour, I've been in discussion with Mandy Carter, Judith Cohn, Jane Shaheen, and Elizabeth Van Winkle. Um, we've been discussing lesbian visibility, and I wish we had a lot more time. But I, I just would like to give everyone, let's say, 30 seconds or so to just any other, if you had any other lingering thoughts or something you wanted to raise, uh, please. And it, it, please do speak up. Real quick, I'll just say the changing of hearts and minds and the changing of public policy has really been the heart of what we've done done. This is Mandy signing off. Thank you, by the way, all and, of you. And thank you, Mandy. I'd love to have you back on sometime. Uh, thank you all ha for having me so much. I'm so honored to be with all of you and it's okay to punch Nazis. That's my two cents. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me and inviting me and the honor to be with everybody here. And my sign off is, uh, let's go Darwin. Okay. <laughs> all right. And this is Jane Sheehan and, uh, I just want to invite everybody to uh, Butch Appetit um, and uh, go Niners, go San Francisco, go Darwin. And um, well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, it, is, it has been a, a pleasure again. Thank you so much, Jane Sheehan, Elizabeth, Co Elizabeth Van Winkle, Judith Cohn, and Mandy Carter. It's been great. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will be continuing this discussion again.